A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I've decided to do a new podcast. This one will be called Brown People, a podcast where I speak to politicians, pundits, mothers and thinkers about discovering the stories of people of colour. I'll be your host as we dive into the lives of thoughtful individuals who have maybe courted controversy but have definitely lived a life worth talking about. We'll be talking about the struggles, the triumphs and everything in between as we hear the experiences of people from all over the globe. We'll be getting to the root of what drives them, how they see the world and how the world sees them and how they've overcome the obstacles that life has thrown in their way. This is a podcast that will be an exploration and a conversation. So join us as we shine a light on the stories, struggles, and we look at the lives of people of colour. Please subscribe to it today, whether you're a brown person or not. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome, my name is Royfield Brown. This is Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. Or at least that's our normal MO. Today we're looking at the global banking crisis. Is it a crisis? What is going on? We've had two banks go belly up in the United States. We've had Credit Suisse and UBS merge. Is the world suffering from some level of a systemic crisis when it comes to finance and banking. So today we have Miki Gabriel, who is somewhat of a financial sage over here in the United States, I believe she hails from Texas, who's going to at least handhold us through some of these questions. Uh, Miki, how are you today? I am doing applause. Thank you so much and happy to be here. Happy to be a sage as well. I appreciate that. You know what? More about this topic than me. So for our purposes, you are our go-to sage. Also, we have with us Greg Sattel and Marvin Alaves, who will be also chiming in. A rough week for the banking industry. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. The second biggest bank collapse in U.S. history. The Silicon Valley Bank collapsed on March 10 after a run on deposits doomed the tech-focused lenders' plans to raise fresh capital. This prompted U.S. regulators to step in with emergency measures, including seizing another bank three days later in a bid to ease fears that depositors might pull their money from other lenders. 
During the pandemic, Silicon Valley Bank had gotten all of these deposits. Their deposits tripled. It was a huge, huge, huge influx. And they did what banks do. They took some of the deposits and made loans, but they also invested a lot of them in securities, which are pretty safe. Some issues had been bubbling under the surface at Silicon Valley Bank since the Federal Reserve started raising rates. But first off, Miki, to the best of your ability, could you take us through the events of, let's say, the last month? We've had the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. We've had the Signature Bank in New York also collapse. Are these two things related? Do we have a systemic problem? And that's before we come on to Credit Suisse and, U- and UBS and a confidence within banking globally. So the short answer to that would be no. I definitely don't believe that there is a financial banking crisis, definitely not in a comparison to 2008. That does not mean that it cannot fantastically fail in a different way than 2008. So basically what happened, and this all started March 8th or around that week, there was actually one bank that failed that doesn't get a lot of notice because it was the crypto bank, which is Silvergate. I personally believe and a lot of others believe that this is what contributed to SVP depositors being spooked because a lot of banks do not really deal with crypto. As we know, banks deal with no lending, which is basically they do not keep all of your money there at the bank waiting for you to come and get it. Crypto, as we know, is very volatile in how it trades. So a lot of banks just traditionally do not deal with crypto. So we had that bank collapse where the FDIC had to come in on the, and then of course, a few days later, we had the fantastic play-by-play, which we all were witness to of SVB, complete with a Silicon Valley billionaire calling people, telling them to get their money out, who says that he was a major depositor himself, um, Mr. Peter Thiel. So SVB collapsed, and I'm still kind of astounded at just the alacrity with which this happened. We wouldn't have seen this in 2008. The FDIC stepped in, and I believe by that Friday, they were already taken over. This was a pretty huge undertaking to where they came in. They couldn't raise $2 billion. They had a lot of problems. SVB, as we know, was the Silicon Valley baby. A lot of the the tech, not the tech companies, but the startups used this bank. So it was a black diversification in both the people that it serviced. So when there was a high liquidity run, as we said, someone telling them, get their money out, here's a problem. No bank can really sustain a liquidity run. Let me just point that out. If all of us went to our financial institutions and uh, all at once and said, give me my money in cash, there would be a problem, right? No one keeps that money on hand for people to come in. So the third bank was also crypto related. That was the one you referenced, the I believe first signature in New York. And the, again, the FDIC stepped in that weekend on Sunday, I believe, and basically made the announcement. So we really have to appreciate how quick the FDIC moves in and just makes things okay. So what I will point out, too, is that the fact that a lot of these banks, this may have been a warning call for them, but we know that interest rates are going to go up. Chairman Powell made that very clear. They are trying to battle inflation. And he basically that pronouncement to me was just telling these banks to get their balance sheets together to make sure that they are in this for the long haul. We are seeing some banks do the corporate merger and take advantage of the current situation. The SVB arm overseas was actually bought, unlike the one here. But today there was an announcement, ironically, that First Citizens Bank is picking up SVB and its assets. You are giving us a masterful kind of wide scope of this issue. But you did mention interest rates having to rise. Please explain to us why rising interest rates have maybe exposed the banks to greater risk. 
Absolutely. And I think that's key and a point of contention for most, depending on whom you're speaking to. So we know that inflation is rampant across the globe, not just the United States on the tail end of the pandemic, where literally the entire world was shut down. And then when we reopened, we saw because all governments were doing this quantitative easing, not just the United States to stimulate the economy during this time of the pandemic. So of course, now we have inflation. There's a lot of discussion about where it stems from, right? But you can't shut things down and then reopen without thinking there's not going to be some supply chain issues. And of course, we have the aggression with the war with Russia against Ukraine that have also contributed to this. So in battling inflation, the Fed has been very clear since early 2022 that they were going to be raising interest rates. And this impacts a lot of us for fixed income. It's actually pretty good because we're seeing like 5% CDs, which we haven't seen in forever. For debt, it's very bad. So what you and I and everyone listening has had to do is basically make changes. We know that certain things are more expensive. So we've had to make accommodations in our budget. What these banks did not do, and there's been a lot of allegations against the Fed, which again, I think are unfounded because they've been very clear that they are going to do whatever they need to do to battle inflation. What we saw SVB do was make some very poor choices by basically tying up their cash with 10-year positions, 10-year maturity for fixed income when it was paying 1.75. And at the time of their failure, it was about hovering over 3%. So number one, they probably should not have tied up so much capital in something that was pretty low in an inflationary interest rate environment, if I can use those two terms together. Okay, so understand that. Fundamentally, the banks have loaded up long-term bonds, leaving them exposed if interest rates rise. What part does regulation or maybe a failure of regulation have to play in this? Oh, So in my opinion, there were a couple of things that we could point to. The first thing is that Dodd-Frank regulations were rolled back by the previous administration for what is deemed smaller banks, banks under $250 billion. This probably would have helped a little bit, but not entirely, because in my opinion, what we saw was probably individuals that just were missing the mark, right? There were some severe missteps that SVB took. The lack of diversification, not really knowing their customer base, or just waiting until the last minute to try to offload these assets, just really not paying attention. So I want to point that out. Typically, sometimes we can point to a lack of regulation, but in this case, I would say, in my infamous words, they were really just poo heads, right? They just, they just missed the mark. They weren't paying attention, and it was obvious they weren't paying attention for some time. With a sector which is so vital to the economy, banking. Isn't that still some failure of regulation somewhere that people didn't even notice that this bank had over leveraged itself and potentially had left itself exposed? Oh, absolutely. I do think what's going to change is the auditing process because this bank was audited by KPMG and they're actually coming under scrutiny. So shout out to the current administration and regulators for basically acknowledging all of the severe missteps that led to this, because this is what can absolutely probably be occurring in other financial institutions. They should not have been given a green light within the last year, in my honest opinion, definitely not within the last six months. So we do need to review how these banks are audited, what they look at, what the requirements are, how healthy these balance sheets. A lot of people may have heard that the bank was solvent, meaning that the checks and balances were there on paper. But as we all know, you need to have liquidity and cash flow. And I do agree with you there, Rofield. I think it's just a little bit more nuanced in that it's, I think it's a combination. It's going to have to be legislation and regulation 
and what I would like to call accountability. There need to be more fixed stress tests, as they call them, on these financial institutions, on their balance sheets, regardless of the current interest rate environment, because I see this happening with a bank that just made a shortfall, right? They just made bad choices. And we cannot have that in these institutions that are supposed to be fiduciaries of our money. It's not really, it should not be our concern that they don't know how to manage their deposits. They should have simply pulled some of their lending out, right? Or they're a publicly traded company. Maybe they should have done some layoffs, did some other cost-cutting measures in terms of versus whatever road they tried to go down that ultimately led to their failure? Great question. Are banks fundamentally just too big and too important to fail? Specifically talking about the US banking system before we move on to the rest of the world, specifically Europe and USB and, and Credit Suisse. Do we basically give them an out where they make money, but when they go bust and they fundamentally spook if not the market or the economy, we just need to bail them out. Is this just a way of giving a helping hand to plutocrats? Uh, so that is a layer question. I am someone that is a proponent of, it doesn't matter if you have a billion dollars in a bank, should depositors lose their money? And I don't agree with that, right? I think that every person should be able to trust their financial institution, no matter what. So there's two things there. The other thing is that these banks, and not everyone likes to use the B word, bailout, right? But what we do know is that the FDIC basically created a different entity to guarantee the depositors over the typical $250,000 for social security number and tax ID. So we do see where they had to come in and save them, so to speak, to make everyone whole. I see the necessity of it. We cannot have banks fail, especially in this current environment, because it is all about that consumer confidence, right? We have consumer confidence in the dollar. We have consumer confidence in our democracy. We have consumer confidence in our legislation and in our the people that run the country and in the United States and the global economy and finance. But to just let a bank fantastically fail and have billions of dollars just go away, we fundamentally cannot allow that. And I'm not split in that it needs to happen. It had to happen. I am split that it is going to have to happen, right? It's never going to not be governments coming to the rescue of these financial institutions because ultimately who they are rescuing are the citizens. Now, I will point out that the investors in these banks completely lost their money. I believe that SVB had a market cap of about $6 billion, if I'm not mistaken, and whoever owned that stock completely went away. We'll see what happens now that they've been acquired. But Silvergate was also publicly traded as well. And the investors did not get made whole. The ins- the depositors did, which are two different things. So the banking crisis of 2007, 2008 was the result of reckless lending, which led to a housing bust. The economy, we're told, is very different now than it was back in 2008. Could you explain to us how the world economy is different and why you believe there won't be some level of contagion from these banking failures? Not an economist, but love to study these things. And what I will say, the difference in 2008 versus now is, number one, we are entirely a global economy. What happens here 
you do feel on the other side of the world. I think before the aggression, I was actually just doing some reading. And I remember reading something that said, typically with what happens with geopolitical situations is what happens on the other side of the world does not impact the United States. And now it's begged to differ. We cannot say that anymore. Just like when the aftermath of SEB with our markets, it actually reverberated around the globe. We saw some of the stocks being impacted in the UK. And of course, the SBB branch in the UK, there was also people coming to that bank because of what happened here saying, where's our money? That's the main difference. And that's both good and bad. Things can happen literally on a dime. And we see just the quickness and I want to say almost the casualness of these events because you don't really have time to to be emotional about them. You have to be in a position to react. So I do give our governments, our regulators, our entities a pass in that regard because they are completely in new waters here, right? There is no precedence for anything that is occurring today on this stage because everything is so intrinsically linked. What happens in one place impacts the next country, impacts the next. The second thing I'll say is we had actually inherited a pretty robust economy going into the pandemic, and I think that helps. In 2008, what we saw was everyone was just having a little bit too much fun. Just to take it back a little bit, what happened in 2008 is you had a lot of commercial lending, residential lending for real estate that was just way out of control. I say this lightly, this puppy probably could have gotten a $100,000 loan to buy something. It was very easy. There was a lot of subprime lending. What happened is that these financial institutions then pre or sold these as prepackaged secure mortgage securities, which are traditionally considered very safe, right? Because people tend to pay mortgages and then they were sold again and sold again. And then when these properties went in foreclosure, we saw it was just like a house of cards, right? It just went from one place to the other. You had pension funds investing in these entities. And then it just took out a bunch of companies along the way. And it was the shot heard around the world with the United States. We had a severe recession and it took us a couple of years to recover from that. So again, we don't have anything that is similar to that right now. Following the pandemic, the Fed did what they had to do. They stimulated the economy. A lot of people use that cash, right? There was a lot of investment. So we've had that two-year period of harvest, and now we're facing winter. And unfortunately, a lot of these banks are getting caught. From One of my favorite quotes from, from the, the Oracle of Omaha, when the tide comes in, we see who's swimming naked. And there have been a lot of people who have been swimming naked, basically. We just have to throw them some some swimming trunks in and keep it moving, but definitely not 2008, not even remotely. This is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic is my geopolitical, political podcast where I look at news and the views from all over the world, primarily, though, from a lens and a focus from the UK and from the US. Today, our fears have been allayed about the financial turbulence. Are we having a banking crisis as according to our speaker, Miki Gabriel? Absolutely not. This is some level of turbulence, but a crisis it is not. But we are speaking about why we have had these run on banks. And here we are in 2023. And first off, I need to say to you, Marvin, please jump in. If you are in the audience, now is the time for you to raise your hand and jump up on stage. Ask a question to either Miki or to Marvin. I must admit, if the question is in depth about anything to do with finance, my bank manager would say, do not ask me. So that's the first point. Now, secondly, this is a recording of the podcast. The Mid-Atlantic is available on all good podcatchers. Marvin, Miki, I think, has given us quite a majestic sweep 
or at least the turbulence that we've seen in the US. If you think that she's missed anything out or you want to add any extra colour, now is your time, Mr. Marvin. And then when you've done that, then I think what we'll do, we'll move over onto Europe and try and understand Credit Suisse and UBS. But Marvin. Mickey, nice to meet you and hear your thoughts. Really appreciate that. I share a little bit of a different view. I believe that we are more in the middle of the of the turbulence, the storm, and that there's a very touchy-feely elegance in this call-and-response type of relationship that the, uh, the federal central banks are having with the banking institutions. I think that we are in our form of a banking crisis, and it's a system of putting the finger in the dike before the dike explodes and they are having to go to extreme extents in order to try to mitigate any what they're using the word contagion now and so reducing the contagion impact but i believe that we have not seen the end of it and i believe that a lot of decisions were made at the very last minute i think a lot of discussions were had over the weekend of the 10th of march and that there was probably a lot of intense discussions that finally came to this idea of providing funds or providing some type of safety net, both in the actual form of providing it, but also in the messaging. I think that a lot of what's going on has a lot to do with this new reality that we've seen in a variety of scenarios around the planet earth which is messaging right and what is social media and how does media play a role in all that that's my top level response to to what's been shared yeah and my understanding of all this is pretty scant i just read the headlines of the newspapers because i don't claim to be any level of a financial expert but miki to marvin's point please explain to me how a few tweets and a bit of chatter on social media could actually lead to the run and the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. That says to me there's a systemic weakness within our system if fundamentally that level of speculation could collapse a bank. I do agree with you there. And with that, Marvin, I think that I'm looking at everything in totality, right? I believe we have over 4,000 banks. We do have credit unions, right, which kind of get put into that lump they're even covered by a different form of insurance, FDIC. Then we have brokerage, brokerage firms, which are covered by SIPIC. So I think of everything when I say our financial institutions, I tend to think of those in totality, right? I don't think that there's a mass problem. But what I will say is with SVB, at least with SVB and the three banks that failed in seven days, we did see some very specific lack of diversification. The first and the third were crypto banks, right? And then SVB, that's pretty much all I can say. This is going to be a lifetime movie one day, right? Everything that happened <laughs> with the letter that the CEO sent saying, oops, hey guys, $1.8 billion, right, Marvin? It just reads like a, it reads like a lifetime movie already. We got Peter Thiel, we got them getting their bonuses, right? I think I'm lucky. Think, I, mean, man, I think you should get on lifetime. I think you're going to go straight to Netflix. Right. I think you should <laughs> Netflix, right? I Netflix worthy. Yeah, it totally is. Just one one point of clarification, Silvergate actually did not get shut down, believe it or not. It was actually on the 8th of March, they voluntarily closed their business. So that's just a small little technicality that I just wanted to surface there. So it's not considered a an FDIC shutdown. But I do agree with something you said, which I think most people will, 
I believe that all three banks, all three banks were crypto friendly. That's the kind of term that, that I've been using. And I think that some of this is a re, is a, the shockwave from what was happening last year in the crypto space. And we're just seeing it finally come to some kind of impact, right? Kind of like a tsunami where, where the wave is in the middle of the ocean, but it, eventually it'll hit something. And I think that this is the land that it hit, these three banks. It wasn't the corporate espionage scandal, the alleged laundering of drug money or the private banking fraud that brought down Credit Suisse. In the end, it was a five-word interview response from its biggest investor. I'm wondering whether you would be open to assisting further if there was another call for additional liquidity from Credit Suisse. The answer is absolutely not. In other words, if Credit Suisse needed propping up financially, it couldn't count on the Saudis. Investors panicked that the bank would collapse and spark a new global crisis. It was the culmination of years of missteps and misconduct that showed what it had failed to learn from the last financial crisis. Namely, don't take unnecessary risks with your clients' money. As power brokers, politicians and executives scrambled to avert catastrophe, the 166-year-old pillar of Swiss finance would be corralled into a deal that almost no one really wanted. Deal done. UBS will buy Credit Suisse for 3 billion Swiss francs. Truly historic. This ends a 166-year run for Credit Suisse. That bell is for the demise of Credit Suisse, the birth of a new bank, and a whole new view on Swiss banking. We have this situation with these three banks in, in the U.S., and... It appears that the U.S. economy has been able to cope with this. The Fed has swooped in, protected small investors. Those larger investors, dare I say, the plutocrats that I mentioned some 20 minutes ago, have lost their shirts. So in that regard, people that weren't to blame for the strategic mistake of these banks have not been punished, the small investors, but those who were have been is this at all connected to what has happened with Credit Suisse and UBS? And Miki, if you could just briefly give us an overview of that situation there. So Royful, there's something that you just said about a tweet being powerful. I did point out that we are in a global economy, but we are also in a global society where information moves faster than the speed of light. It was just recently announced that the Saudi National Bank chair resigned because of comments that they made that is being attributed to the demise of Credit Suisse. So it's interesting how these things happen, right? We're seeing these institutions and billions of dollars being impacted by tweets, social media, and you can tie that into other events that may have happened around the time of January that are attributed largely to social media. But I think we do have to acknowledge that times they're changing. It was actually a comment a couple of weeks ago that also caused a severe stock run to occur when this uh, the Saudi National Bank chair said that they were absolutely not going to put additional assets into Credit Suisse. And that is largely contributed to them being raided in a sense. And I'm using those terms lightly and intentionally, but to them being uh, picked up by UBS. So I think that they were a bank that in light of SVB failing and was basically looking at all of the banks, which of course is going to happen. They were seen to have been a little bit more at risk. They had a $10 billion run in Q4 of 2022. So people were 
losing a little confidence. This public statement by one of their, I believe, largest depositors was just like the nail in the coffin. Once again, we have someone making a statement who is widely regarded and uh, basically contributing to the demise of a bank. We can't put it all on that person, but words matter. They always have. So that's basically what happened with a Credit Suisse. And what we can point to in them being acquired, because if to take it back to SVB, they did not find a buyer and they were really trying to do so in order to avoid being shuttered by the FDIC. And they could not. In this case, Credit Suisse at least was able to get picked up by S. And of course, UBS had the cash and now going forward going to be even larger. Kind of interesting what happened there, too. It seems like a lot of people just maybe should stop speaking publicly about what they feel about these financial institutions, because what we're seeing is that it's having a huge impact on depositors and investors in the market. That's going to be interesting too. that whole dynamic going forward, because again, that's not something that we're used to, that billions being moved on a tweet. Shout out to Elon Musk. But stay with Credit Suisse before we come on to the founder of Tesla. But Credit Suisse has suffered a decline in trust from investors and customers over the last few years, and it had a record last year. Why? What were the, what have they been doing incorrectly for the last few years? My personal opinion is that banking, and I do, someone made some great comments just in terms of what happened to where this merger finally occurred, right? I do think that was the nail in the coffin. Maybe it was made more public, but in my personal opinion, banking is a dinosaur, right? Coming from that background for years, it moves very slow and it has to. You have legislate regulators, you have restrictions, right? You have compliance requirements, you have fiduciary requirements, right? Nothing moves fast. And I do think that in the past decade, it has been moving fast. You do have to keep up. It's very much an old boy network. And I don't know who would dispute that, right? It's old. It's archaic. It's restrictive. It is not a disruptor. It's It just does not move freely with the times. So I think that we want our banks to be slow and to be institutional to the very DNA because I don't want my bank to be down with the latest whims and art and trends of the economy. I need to know that it's as solid as granite and that actually if I'm going to put my money in there, my money's going to be there. I actually don't want this institution to be buoyed by fashion and by whim, surely. So I don't want them to be fleet of foot in that regard. Agreed. And Credit Suisse, by the way, has been embroiled in several scandals, including a couple of drug dealers, allegations of laundering money, just just a lot of missteps there, client data. And you can see it, it's been documented for a while. So they have been on shaky ground. But I do agree with you. I do agree with you. But these systems are so slow that they may be set up to where they're not really able to to move swiftly enough to correct themselves, if that makes sense. I know I'm dancing lightly around it because we do need compliance. We do need regulations. And it's not for the 99%. It's for the 1% that are icky. Because when you're dealing with billions and millions of dollars in these financial institutions, they are just run by by individuals. So I think that things are moving at such a pace to where they can't keep up and we're seeing some banks fall through the cracks. It's not to give them a pass because they absolutely should recognize this. But I do think that 
they're not embracing the proper technology. Like it's been thrown out now that chat GPT could have actually helped because you can basically put in those specifications. Like maybe there's some watermark that they should not go down or they can track their, the balance sheet investments. And again, they should be doing all of these things themselves. But I will point out, regardless of what happened in this years, what we saw specifically contribute to them being bought out was basically this communication from someone that was spread out far and wide through social media. So they are going to have to navigate these things as well and try to counter these things that they actually cannot control, if that makes sense. Because we are seeing that these communications do matter. They do erode confidence. But these banks are basically just going to have to change with the times still including that regulation, but they are going to be able, need to be able to move a little bit more quickly. Or I do agree with Marvin, we are going to see more of them either get merged, get taken over, or, or fail by tweet. So just to end up with Credit Suisse and UBS, so the Swiss government gave a $54 billion loan to the bank. That wasn't enough. And then this had to come in. Would this potentially crashed the Swiss economy, let alone the Swiss banking system. Oh, absolutely. Had they been allowed to fail? Yes. Because again, when you have money that just goes away, especially for depositors, you, when you have the average citizen that loses confidence in those financial institutions, they're losing confidence in governance. And history has shown that when that happens, that's when true chaos ensues. Yes. And these things are a domino effect. We see them reverberating throughout the world. So I absolutely agree that would have been catastrophic for them. Are there any lessons, are there any other banks, sorry, which maybe are suffering from some level of liquidity problems, short term crisis of confidence, which maybe those of you in the industry are aware of, but those of us and outside aren't? So there are a few, I believe there are a few, Marvin may know a little bit about them more than me. I will say that I have personally looked at my portfolio and exposure to these institutions right now because it's just not a good time for them. What I will say is what the United States did in basically acknowledging a problem, which I think is very important because usually the average person does not hear about these things until you're reading about it in the news and you're lined up trying to get your money. So they've been pretty transparent in that, that they are going to continue to do investigations. They have not ruled out criminal charges, which I think is awesome sauce, because in my opinion, someone at SVB, lots of someone's, yeah, something happened there that should not be allowed to happen. There are some institutions, but what I will say is the development and what the FDIC has done and set up should take care of a lot of those fears and that they are well prepared to step in to make sure that everyone's money is okay. But all of these banks, all of these institutions have been put on notice. The scrutiny is going to come. It's needed. It's warranted. It's mandated now. And there are other banks waiting with cash to to come in and be the savior for those that are found lacking. So they probably have this next quarter to get things together. So I do think that we're going to see more communication around banks that have been just getting by because the scrutiny now, as I said, that everyone is looking at all of them, especially with those balance sheets. I know I didn't really answer the question, Roy Field. I still want to keep hope alive that they're going to get it together. Appreciate that as social media goes, this is probably one of the smallest platforms. And then we're on one of the smallest rooms, one of the smallest social media platforms. 
I fully appreciate that if you were to say this bank or that bank, potentially we could be running into the same situation where this, where what you says gets taken up by other people and then we have a crisis of confidence or because of social media and a bank then goes belly up. I want to move away from specifically looking at the banks. And Marvin, this is a question to you. Again, if you are in the audience and you want to come up and ask a question, feel free. Or if you have a point of view to make. Marvin, a question to you. The world thought that 2023, at least economists thought that 2023 was going to be difficult for the world. Many economies, large economies were forecast to be in recession here we are, end of the first quarter of 2023, and everybody's revising their fi- It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Because upwards. Why so? And when you mean, and when you say upwards, you're saying there's the positive outlook. Uh, absolutely, I think it's only Britain and Russia who are of the world's major economies that are forecast to maybe be in recession at some point this year, as opposed to let's say six months ago, where we thought that just about every economy was at least going to dip into recession, rebound strongly in 2024, but everybody thought that 2023 was going to be difficult, and those figures have been somewhat revised. Yeah, and I think that one of the measuring factors in the U.S. is really about this, the jobless rate and how it's actually not bad, all things considered. So that's the strange part is that people are getting jobs and the jobless rate continues to to decrease. But I think that social media and these narratives have a lot to do with what gets caught up in the everyday discussion. Right. One could argue that this room itself is contributing to that factor, right? Traditionally, we would not have social audio and wouldn't be discussing our views on SVB Bank's event. And so it would just end. Like that discussion might a- appear on the nightly news, right? But now with this 24-7 world of Twitter, of social audio, Facebook... And even Facebook's kind of out of it now, right? You can argue that Telegram and all these other experiences that are on the mobile are really the heavy influencer. And I think there's some truth to that. And again, is truth 
what's really happening or what people are saying. And that's the part that's hard to navigate. And as a result, for people that don't have time to spend, I'm not a banker, but I have spent an abnormal amount of time reviewing and researching what occurred. Very abnormal amount of time. Because I believe that we need to get the truth out, right? And I feel more confident about what I know, but I'm not an economist. I'm not a banker. I didn't study finance. So I think it goes both ways. I think that we have to be good citizens of the world and try to tone our responses. But I think that in general, the small, the world's a little smaller because we're more connected. And I think the reality is that, yeah, we, ha we have strong people that want to work and want to continue contributing to the, their economies, both locally and nationally. Miki, if I'm trying to understand the reasons why we had inflation in many of the world's major economies in the last, let's say, 18 months, it's because of the amount of liquidity that was thrown into all of those economies because of COVID. We propped up workers not being able to go to work, various industries, if I use the UK as an example, et cetera, et cetera. So there's loads of money sloshing around. Do you think that maybe if we take a long-term view of the robustness of established and developed economies, that we were worried too much about inflation, that this was just a temporary blip we knew it was going to happen. Uh, and then actually, the fundamentals of whether it's the US, the UK, the German economy are pretty robust, considering not only did we have COVID, did we have inflation, but also we've had a conflict in Europe to deal with, let alone supply side issues. So I agree with the chair of Fed that inflation needs to come down, right? So it's important to note that it always hovers about 2 to 3%, right? And inflation is just the increase in the cost of goods and services over time. It can be a short time. So inflation is going to impact much more, much more so to me, the lower income families, which is why it needs to be battles, right? What we've seen is that, as Marvin said, we still have a pretty robust economy in spite of them assaulting the U.S. economy and global assaults against these economies over the past year, I'll say, right? Because inflation is still rampant, even though they're deliberately trying to make it more expensive to access capital and to utilize money. So I think that it's important that it does need to be handled. Over the long term, we cannot hover at these these high rates of inflation, right? It's going to erode the dollar. It's going to erode confidence. It's going to have a much, much more severe impact than what we're going through right now with this discomfort with literally being punished to stop spending money, to stop deploying capital, to just stop and pause, especially in the United States, because we have a difficulty in doing so, right? People are still just spending too much. We're just doing a little bit too much, which is why we still saw that little 0.25% increase that had to happen. I do think that they're going to change how they battle it, right? Because it's, I don't want to say it's not working because in my opinion, you can say it hasn't gotten any lower, but it really hasn't increased as, as much either. And if you look at other countries, you'll see that they're still battling it and it's increasing. It's not going down at all. So at least we've managed to keep it at bay. But that is why it's so important, right? The millionaires will be okay. The billionaires will be okay. The affluent will be okay, right? There's credit that they can use. But the average everyday American cannot sustain themselves because we know that wages do not increase at the rate of this, this inflation. That's supernatural in a sense that we know where it came from, but we cannot control anything about what's happening because again this is going on around the world 
So that's why it's so important that inflation be handled, addressed, as opposed to this kind of free market and free economy that will, that is what we would have if the Fed did not deliberately try to tell people and entities, institutions, corporations, please chill. Essentially, that's all Powell is saying. Just chill. Just chill and let it come down. But Americans, you're not going to tell us what to do, especially with our dollars. A question. And I'm going to argue a neoliberal point of view here. So it's not one I actually hold in my water, so to speak. I'm going to argue this. When we have, let's say, 18 months of high inflation, 10 point anything percent is high inflation, at least by the standards of the last 40 years, record high levels of inflation. When we have that type of level of inflation, and then obviously workers throughout a multiplicity of industries say, our wages need to go up by at least that 10 point whatever percent. And then they don't get those wage demands because then that would lead to even further runs on inflation, that everybody then needs to be matched by this 10 point whatever wage increase. Is what is supposed to happen in that, let's say they get a wage increase of let's say 5%, But then as inflation then comes down over the next, let's say, five years, that then they get more than the rate of inflation. So maybe in five years time, that worker actually ends up being back to where they were pre the inflationary hike. Is that the way that the economy is supposed to work? That's the neoliberal bad angel on my shoulder saying this. But is that a correct way of looking at inflationary pressures and how they impact on workers in industry? Oh, I would say absolutely. And I will say that inflation is more micro than macro, right? And I love to use this example because if you are in New York versus, shout out to my hometown of Eunice, Louisiana, you we don't call it inflation what's happening in New York, but it's just there's that increase right? The cost of goods and services are much, much more expensive. You can even look at wherever, whatever town you're in. I'm in Houston. If I get gas in one of the nicer areas, like the Galleria versus quote unquote, which is five miles down the street, that could be a 20 or 30 cents, a difference on for a gallon. So we we always have these built in price changes or price of discrimination, I should say. But yes, in a perfect world, that is exactly what we would see. We would see that wages would rise with this inflation so that everything would be kept on par. But we know in a perfect economic system, which number one, that does not exist because these systems are cyclical, right? What goes up must come down. And there's always going to be, there's no parity there, right? I think that that would be awesome. We try to have just depending on which administration is in power, we see some administrations try to handle this with tax increases versus tax cuts. I believe the current administration wants to increase tax, which I'm actually a proponent of, because there has to be a way to handle this without impacting the average American whom we net 40% doesn't have $400 for an emergency. This money is going to also, I'm just adding in the debt ceiling in there, right? So all of these things are at play. And yes, it would be wonderful if these corporations, these businesses could pay their employees more, especially in light of what's going on with the current economy. And let's not even talk about the price of eggs because yeah, my, my favorite cafe actually had to almost double the price of a croissant egg and cheese sandwich because they were paying almost quadruple 
the cost of a dozen eggs than they were about a year ago. Crazy. Good heavens. The Eggs Benedict Inflationary Index. Kathy, welcome to the stage. You are the only person who appears to be brave enough to ask a question. Kathy, ask your question away. I'm old enough to remember when the bank manager would write on my letter, it's okay, Kathy, you can open this. And that kind of, <laughs> yeah, and that kind of personalised service, not from a kind of customer service point of view, but from a knowledge locally of your income and spending habits, I think is missed. I don't think that's a revolutionary thing to say, but I'm very interested, Miki, that you say you'd like to increase taxes. This is a bit of a big question, but do you see a alternative to capitalism, something that might work both in the States and globally? Oh boy, thank you, Kathy, with the big question. Wow. I am a realist and I get in trouble for some of you surprisingly, right? Because I always look at the numbers and the numbers are not emotional and the numbers don't lie. They just tell the story. And no, quite frankly, I don't. So what I always point out is that capitalism is not something that we cannot touch and feel. This is maybe an unpopular opinion, but capitalism is upheld by choices, spending. Shout out to the average American consumer. We are consumer-driven creatures. The old adage, keeping up with the Joneses, I believe, came out in the 1920s. And boy, have we ever been keeping up with the Joneses in terms of just our desire for things. I don't think that capitalism in itself can be replaced because it's so intrinsic to our society to create, to consume, to capitalize, right? To I don't I wouldn't even say that we're building anymore, but we are acquiring. And I think that there would have to be a massive mindset shift if COVID didn't do it, right? With us literally being shuttered in our homes and we saw the impact Mother Nature probably sighed big waves of relief because we weren't out just tromping about. Look at what happened with the canals in Italy. They were clear because people just weren't just doing too much. And that still didn't change anything. We just cannot wait to get outside and go to the Gucci store or some of us. No, I just don't see it because we would need a mind shift because capitalism is upheld by individuals, institutions, and systems that are citizens of society. We'll see. We'll see, but I'm not holding my breath. Great question. And thank you for the question, Kathy. You, Kathy, I misspoke, which is a dreadful Americanism. I hate saying misspoke. I was in error. There are two other people, Austin and David, who also wanted to back you up by coming onto stage. So, David, what is your question? And then we're going to end with Austin. David. Well, the question, my question concerns this. Where in U.S. law is it stipulated that the Fed has to achieve a 2% inflation rate? Because... This is what has driven in a frenzy of rate rising for the past year. I'm in, I'm impacted by this industry quite, or not to assume I'm impacted by these rate rises in my industry, where I've seen homes, building projects shuttered midstream by re these regional banks that are facing these stress tests that they're not able to provide any more capital. We're talking about this these being canaries in the coal mine with regard to what's happening and say, in Southern California real estate and then also national. But there was no playbook for this type of rate rising, obviously seen as evident by the SV, SVB bail, not bit, the bailout and also the collapse. But why, 
where is it written in stone that the Fed has to achieve this this 2% inflation rate? And it seems to me that it's caused a lot more damage. And then the other aspect is that a lot of Americans are beating back this the inflation and the rate rising because they locked in these super low mortgages at 25 and 3%, and the Fed has no way to check that. So they have, a lot of these homeowners have a lot of just discretionary spending capability because they got these really cheap loans that aren't, in fact, impacted by the Fed rate rises. But anyway, that would be my question on the inflation front. Thanks for hearing me out. Thank you. So I hear you, David. And what I will say is I think that kind of hit the nail on the head. You said that these uh, the people that capitalize on those low rates have discretionary, extra discretionary dollars. But what I'll counter to that is that they shouldn't. The average American is not prepared for retirement. The average American is not prepared for generational wealth if that's what they want to attain. The average American is not prepared for leaving a financial legacy for their families. The average American does not have, I believe the last time I looked at the stats, not more than 60% of Americans even had wills in estate planning. So you hit the nail on the head. We keep spending. We just keep spending. And to say that we're not prepared for this environment, we did have a high inflationary period in the 70s. We've just forgotten. We know what this looks like, right? We know this. It's We have no excuse, especially these financial institutions. If a single mom has had to pivot because the cost of eggs has increased and her gas increased and she had to take care of her kids during COVID because the schools were shut down, should we not expect the same of these financial institutions to pivot and move because they see what's on the horizon? They certainly talk about it enough. Jerome Powell has been quite clear, emphatic almost, I will continue to battle inflation at the cost of the economy, at the cost of jobs. He and Elizabeth Warren have been battling forever, right? She's calling for him to be fired. I don't agree with her, by the way. But I uh, yeah, they need to just get their things together or they need to hire a single mom and they will help them get it together because they have no excuse. And what I will say is, again, What we saw during this period, who was refinancing these mortgages? Who was paying one and a half times the value of these properties? In some cities and states, and a shout out to Texas, we had a third of people that were buying these properties cash? Where were they getting this money? This wasn't developed from those $1,400 stimulus checks. The people that got those checks were putting that right back into the economy and paying for rent and for food. So again, coming on the heels of a really good economy coming into COVID and this quantitative easing, free money. It was being used to just increase and increase. Totally understand what you're saying. But yeah, I think inflation needs to come down. I'm not as much worried about myself or maybe some other individuals, but definitely worried about the single parent, the veterans, right? Our elderly or senior citizens, as I said, that cannot afford this 10%, 10% increase basically on all of their spending versus people that are using this money and are going to be inconvenienced because they don't have access to capital to to build these massive investments or massive businesses. So yeah, I I want I want the average American not to be as impacted as much by these things that they cannot control because they do not have access to resources to really make a difference and stem the tide of this rising inflation. Thank you for that excellent answer. And thank you for that great question, David. Last question goes to you, Greg Sattel. What is your question? If I may ask two questions, masquerading is one question in two parts. This uh, is a Greg Sattel trick. It's not the first time you've done this. And you know, right. we don't have the one point rule here. So yeah. you ask, 
Nawaisa. Mickey, Sheila Blair has been somewhat, I wouldn't say, I would say somewhat, somewhere between skeptical and critical of the response saying that the FD, they really didn't need to step in, that, that the depositors would have been made whole, near whole anyway. And essentially saying if a bank with 200 billion in assets creates systemic risk, what kind of system is it? So my question would be, what do you think of that critique? And also, what do you think should be done to make the system more robust? That's a great question. And yes, I believe that she's been in the trenches. Shout out to 2008. So what I will say is, so there's kind of two sides to it, right? Should they have been made whole in the manner in which they were almost immediately with current legislation and how the FDIC works? No, it's very specific. It's very specific. It's $250,000 for entity, meaning if you had a trust and irrevocable trust and a an LLC with its own tax ID, right, or social security number is based that way. But if you had two or $3 billion, you should not have been. I think it would have taken some time. As I said, the way that this collapsed so quickly, it was really just crazy, even in the current landscape, or even if you want to compare it to 2008, right, the second largest bank failure we've seen since 2008. And the reason that they had to do what they needed to do, which by the way, Yellen was very clear that she was not going to do this. But as that, um, communication came out, they met with the president, I believe Powell as well. And they came to the determination that this is what needed to happen. And I do agree with them. It's simply too volatile right now. The global economy is too volatile. It's, it's very tender. We're still feeling our way out. I've said this so many times, having been in wealth management for 27 years, we don't, people know what they're doing, but we don't have a precedence for this. We really don't. We can look at the charts. We can look at the analysis. We can say if then or the flow charts, but one is impacted at once. And when I say everyone, everyone is impacted at once, right? What's going on in Russia? You can look at what's going on in China. Did you guys see what's going on in Israel? If what in the world is going on? Nothing is calm. Every week there's something. We had to inject that stability. We had to. The last thing we need is billionaires getting spooked about their money. Okay? So when we have billionaires that are looking like, whoa, run me my coins. Like, yeah, we have a problem that would absolutely filter down to the average person. And again, where are they going to put their money? I foresaw people waiting for people at the ATMs and following them home. I am very dramatic, Greg, if you're not familiar with me. So I was like, yes, good job, Fed. Rui Field makes us all that way, Meek. Hold up. Can I just say, what? how does this stack up against 2008? It's not even close, but it's, I would say it could have triggered a 2008 sort of scenario. And what's really, maybe Mika can speak to this and Greg and others, but this, what this really showed, this recent situation, from everything I've heard and read, is that the trust and the confidence in the American system is about psychology. And if people lose that, if the, and this is where the government is doing the dance and why we have the FDIC in the first place, is because these runs were ruinous way back during the Great Depression. And you couldn't stop the fear, the fear that, hey, I'm, my, my life savings is going to get wiped out. And read that that with SFB, they needed to make 
they needed to make some of their depositors whole, so they sold these bonds, these 3% bonds they were holding, and then word got out to Peter Thiel, and he put out the tweet. And so that's all it takes sometimes is, and this bank was mismanaged, I, I hate to say it, but they were mismanaged. They didn't have a risk manager on site. They leveraged the gutted laws that Trump wrote into to law in 2018, and there's a great piece by Dean Baker, the economist Dean Baker, a little bit more on the left, Roy Phil might like his work, but Dean Baker said, we gave fire insurance to people who didn't pay for fire insurance, and he said, we basically covered the accident without them paying the premiums, and so this is the moral hazard where the rich can, they want all the spoils, they want to, they want to privatize their profits and then socialize their losses, if you believe that's what happened. So there you go. We've dipped into different waters here on Mid-Atlantic. We don't normally look at finance, but I thought it only right and proper considering we've had three banks in the US and then and a massive global bank, Credit Suisse, teeter on the precipice somewhat, that we looked at what exactly was going on in the world financial system. It looks as if this is some level of just a local turbulence as opposed to some kind of systemic failure. We'd like to thank Miki Gabriel for coming along and explaining this to us and allaying our fears, and also to our good friend Marvin Alaves, who ably assisted her, and also to Greg Sattel, Kathy, David and Eric for firing some great questions to our panel. Don't forget, folks, left to centre politics is right thinking politics, but what we don't do is we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters, but we try and bring them over with the strength of our argument. The Commons is the space which every democracy needs where people can agree to disagree vehemently disagree but still civilly get on with the business of the day the one thing which has come out from this room is that maybe we should have a re-examination of of maybe our banking system but also of financial equity globally but maybe that is a conversation for another time i've been moifield brown and this has been mid-atlantic thank you for giving me your ears and your time <laughs>